Having escalated Sean's abduction to a Category A inquiry, and with the media showing extraordinary interest, Detective Superintendent Steve Fulcher was under tremendous pressure to show progress. As with any investigation of this kind, his team needed to eliminate the obvious suspects as quickly as possible. In more cases than not, that means people close to the victim. This can be frustrating for family and friends. They just want the police out looking for their loved one. When Sean's boyfriend, Kevin, reported her missing, it was natural the police would first need to eliminate him from the investigation. Steve Fulcher explains why. 70% of homicides are domestic in origin. Um, that's a simple fact. And in the absence of any other information as to why Sean has disappeared, one has to clear the ground from under one's feet. So the obvious thing to do is to assess precisely who Kevin is, what family associations there are, to get him to tell me more about Sean. The police had to be thorough, but right from the start, Kevin didn't strike any of the investigators as a likely suspect. Nonetheless, they followed protocol. Kevin was a tie that stands for trace, implicate or eliminate. So really it's an action to get hold of an individual and examine their background, their circumstances, question them and gain information from them that either adds to any suggestion that they may be implicated in some fashion or form or get to the point through a good alibi, through forensic uh, elimination, that you can rule that party out of the inquiry. Now, it's not necessarily an exact science and Kevin and I have spoken about this subsequently because he knows for well what I was doing at that particular point in time which was to try to examine him personally and myself. Other officers had spoken to him prior to me speaking to him because I have to be satisfied in fast time, there's no time to waste here, that actually this isn't a simple domestic situation in which, which would explain Sean's disappearance. So what does this look like in reality? How do detectives go about this elimination? We know it has to be quick because if it wasn't Kevin, police had to explore other avenues and there was no time to waste. So who is Kevin? What was he doing on that night? What's his alibi? What's he really like as a person? You know, Kevin was always very amenable, but you use your own skill and judgment and experience to get to the point of thinking, actually, I don't think he's involved in this at all and I'm going to have to direct this inquiry on that basis because otherwise, I can't narrow the focus of the investigation. Kevin came to see me at the police station. I spent about an hour, hour and a half with him. Good quality officers had spoken to him prior to me um, seeing him myself, and they, you know I value their opinion very highly. But if you're banking your career or making life and death decisions on the basis of somebody else's assessment, on occasion you're going to come a cropper. So good people assessed Kevin Reap, and I was more than happy with their assessment, but I'm going to look him in the eye because if we've got it wrong, all manner of things fail from that point on. And I was satisfied after, after that period of time that he was not involved in Chan's disappearance. But it was important to rule that issue out as the first most obvious step in this investigation.
Cabin wasn't the only trace, implicate, or eliminate person in Shan's circle. In the first couple of days after her disappearance, dozens of police officers worked round the clock to eliminate others who had drifted, for whatever reason, into the orbit of their investigation. There were people who had been with Sean in the nightclub on the Friday night, for instance, picked up on CCTV. One by one, they were all quickly eliminated. The best early lead police had was telephony data, which gave them a clear indication that Sean, or at least her phone, had moved from Swindon Old Town to the nearby but remote Savanak Forest. This occurred between 2.50am and 3.24am on Saturday the 19th of March 2011. That's not a huge amount of time to make the 14 mile journey, so Steve's hypothesis was that if Sean was taken there by car, the person who took her probably took the main route, the A346. As luck would have it, there was a number plate recognition camera on that road. Officers quickly discovered the camera had picked up the number plates of 14 vehicles in the relevant time frame. AMPR is Automatic Number Plate Recognition System. So there's a camera that captured 14 vehicles passing between these two locations in the key relevant time of three o'clock on that Saturday morning. So the immediate thought was, in all probability, to get from Old Town to Savanak within that time frame, that half hour time frame, one would have been expected to pass the automatic number plate recognition camera and therefore be on that cohort. So the first suspect cohort actually was formed from that, which was 14 vehicles that had passed that point in that relevant time period. And that brought about a whole new set of ties, or trace, implicate or eliminate investigations. The drivers of each of the 14 vehicles had to be found as soon as possible. That was my first hope, that in all logical probability, the offender had to be in that cohort. Therefore, we had to just go through 14 ties, 14 prospective parties of interest, and, and eliminate them and get to the point where we had a possible suspect. Of course, it wasn't as simple as that, because the offender wasn't in that suspect cohort. Vehicle after vehicle was tracked down and located, and none of them yielded anything. The most promising was a man who was discovered to live in the heart of the Savanak forest. When officers interviewed him, he said he'd driven into Swindon at that time of night to buy a pack of prawn cocktail crisps. Needless to say, he caught Steve's attention. He lived with his mother in some um, rundown cottage in uh, right in the sort of wilds of, of the forest, and was obviously quite odd. He didn't follow normal social conventions. Everything seemed to indicate that he would be a good possible suspect. On the basis of his demeanour, his living circumstances, his mental condition, and the account he gave, because the account's ridiculous that you'd get up at three in the morning, drive at least half an hour to to satisfy the burning need to eat prawn cocktail crisps at three in the morning. <laughs> but I suppose the alibi, such as it was, was so ridiculous that it didn't take that much to, to bottom out that uh, he hadn't actually, as we uh, 
were able to discover hadn't been responsible for Charles' disappearance, but he was the best prospect at that particular point in time. Each elimination must have felt like the police were back to square one. With those 14 tyres coming to nothing, the investigation needed more leads. Steve decided to appeal to the public directly through the press. When Sean's boyfriend Kevin told her mother Elaine he wanted to talk to the press, she thought it was a good idea. My memory of first meeting Steve Fulcher was on the Monday when we went to do the press conference. We had a meeting with several police people round a table, I remember that very vividly, before going into the press conference and Steve was there. We'd already thought that they're going to want a press conference at some point, you know, because this is what we've seen happen to other families. So it it didn't come as a surprise when I think it was the family liaison that sort of said, we are going to be asking for the family to do a press conference and you might perhaps want to think about who would be doing the reading out at that press conference. Kev very strongly wanted to do it and myself and Sean's father didn't have any objections to him doing it. And in fact, I think I can recall saying to Kevin, I think he should do it you know, because I didn't want in any way anything looking as if Kevin was in any way involved in Sean going missing. Right from the start, Sean's family impressed Steve Fulcher. They were living every family's worst nightmare, yet they were dignified and measured in their responses. Steve knew how hard it must have been for them. On the Monday morning, the O'Callaghan family came to Swindon Police Station to meet with me, but also to discuss a media appeal on their behalf. They were full of dignity and obviously shocked at Sean's disappearance. And I gave them all the information as to what I'd been doing in the preceding 48 hours. And these assurances that we were going to work night and day to find Sean. They displayed the greatest dignity and they agreed to do this media appeal for us, the earlier we could get into the public consciousness, wider audience um, of our concern for Sean, the better. And Kevin particularly very bravely agreed to do that because it quite frequently is the boyfriend or somebody with a close intimate relationship with the uh, the victim. Um, And he knew that, so he was putting himself on offer, really. I just want to say how very worried we are about Sean. She's been missing now for over two days, and it's not like her not to come home or or contact any of us for such a long time. We all want to know where Sean is, and we want her home safe and well. Veteran crime reporter for the BBC, Steve Brody, was present at this press conference. He recalls it being unusual for a few reasons. The appeal at a press conference, the boyfriend, Kevin Reap, he read it out, he made this statement. He appealed for help. He appealed for people to help him bring back his girlfriend, who he was clearly very much attached to. He made this emotional statement, which again, of course, got on television, got on radio, was quoted in newspapers. It was a classic situation where already, the media was already rushing towards 
This was a big story. Of course, on somebody else's grief. But that is the world we live in. And I have to say that journalists like me who've covered crime for decades, I can remember going to press conferences of other families and, and telling the camera crew lots of pictures of the father, lots of pictures of the brother, lots of pictures of the boyfriend. Let's get some close-ups on those because invariably they turn out to have something to do with it. And I have to say, in this case, one of those rare occasions, I got the feeling that he hadn't done it. He wasn't responsible for her disappearance. You got the feeling this was a man who was already exhibiting grief and concern. Nobody ran with the story that nobody was whispering, saying, well, the boyfriend's dodgy. There was none of that, unusually. This was the beginning of a media strategy that would later come under close scrutiny. Various images of Sean were made public. For Sean's brother, Liam, seeing her on television like that as a missing person didn't feel real. I think that we all talk about was sort of seeing those images on, on TV is, is, is very surreal. So it, it's, it, it's almost, yeah, it, you're not looking at something real when you're seeing those images because, I don't know, that, that photo means something else different to you, you know, the one they, they're using to try and spread awareness of what Sean looks like to the wider public. You know, that was a wedding she, she attended or that was, you know, a birthday party she was at. So seeing those images on national news was, was odd. Yeah, and, and difficult to comprehend as well. This is where I'm going to introduce another name to the story who will become important later on. Deborah Peach. One of the people with me was Deborah Peach. Now she was the chief constable's personal assistant, but had come in to assist me in recording my policy during the course of this. So she stood on my shoulder throughout the early days of this inquiry. She's very good at it. We've worked on a number of major crime cases together. One of the things that one is acutely aware of as a senior investigating officer, as I've found out in this case, is that one is accountable, accountable for every decision that I make and every direction I give to everybody else in the inquiry. And therefore, recording policy, ensuring that all that information is trapped, processed, assimilated into the inquiry is a fundamental of my responsibility. And the way that that works best is by writing it down as it occurs. And that's where Debbie fitted in for my inquiries. Debbie would stay by Steve's side throughout the eventful days to come, noting down every crucial decision point and many of Steve's words verbatim. Meanwhile, the investigation was progressing on another front, the CCTV evidence. Steve already knew that Sean had left the Suju nightclub and walked away down the Swindon Old Town High Street. The UK is one of the most intensively surveilled countries in the world, so he knew that whatever happened next, which direction she had gone and how far she had got, should have been captured by some of the dozens of CCTV cameras keeping watch over Swindon's streets. By the Sunday, this evidence had begun to trickle in and Steve's team had spent hours sifting through footage, 
By mid-afternoon on Monday, they finally found something that needed Steve's urgent attention. A few hundred yards up the road from the Suju nightclub in a northerly direction is a pub called the Goddard Arms, and their footage was about to give police the breakthrough they'd been looking for in the investigation. Steve describes what they found. The footage from the CCTV camera was quite a breakthrough on that Monday morning because I had no idea from the last known sighting of her in Suju's nightclub whether she'd turned right or left, whether she'd met somebody. I had no idea what had happened from that point on. So, of course, the immediate issue was to try and find some information on that basis, both through witnesses and, critically, from CCTV footage. And that proved to be vitally important for the case. She'd left Suju's at about 2.52 in the morning. It'd taken her a few minutes to walk this route. But seeing her on that CCTV footage gave us, for the first time, the route that she'd taken. We knew that she was on her own. As the CCTV footage was released to the media, journalist Steve Brody understood the impact it would have on the public. The nightclub CCTV, A, showed her. Of course, it was grainy and it wasn't in colour, but it did show her leaving, clearly alone. She hadn't gone off with somebody else from the nightclub. You could see that she was a pretty girl. She goes downstairs, she, she turns right and goes down the stairs, and then you see her walking away into the distance. And of course she disappears, and you see the, the, the headlights come. And the inference was clear. She had disappeared on that street. She was never seen again. Of course, the release of the CCTV to the media was a calculated ploy on the part of the police. The public knew Sean was missing, but it was haunting to see her walking into the night, to see those moments captured on camera. It brought about the response the police hoped for. By now the uh, footage of Sean leaving Suju's nightclub had been released to the, the media. This was to raise wider awareness of what Sean looked like, obviously for potential witnesses on the night to, uh, to be prompted to come forward. The media picked up on it and ran, ran with it extensively, which was hugely useful. And the major investigation room that I'd set up was inundated with responses from the public. It is one thing for the public to watch the final moments before Sean disappeared, but it is a very different experience for her family. Sean's mum, Elaine, talks about what it was like for them. We were shown it before they give the family the opportunity to watch the CCTV, before I think that it went in the sort of public domain so that we could watch it in private. And it shows Sean walking along from the nightclub in the direction of her home being on the road, a car pulling up, and then the car pulls away and Sean's no longer on the path next to the vehicle. So it's blatantly obvious that she got in that car. Even though you can't physically see her getting in the car, she must have got in the car. You can't begin to imagine the family's horror, but for the police, that was hard evidence that provided a vital piece of the puzzle. The car was parked roughly 40, 50 metres away from where we're standing. 
all you can see are headlights of a car flashing. So the indicators must have been flashing. And the full headlights blotting any detail out from the picture. So he saw her walk towards those headlights. And that car was stationary for one minute, four seconds. What happened between the driver of that vehicle and Sean couldn't be seen from the footage. Now, my thought was, in all probability, Sean had got into that car. It gave me lines of inquiry. I could check further down this road to see whether she'd, in fact, gone beyond that point. If not, and she got in that car, that was a key, key breakthrough in terms of what happened to Sean. The car has stopped next to Sean, and a minute and four seconds later, it drives off and she's in it. But that in itself didn't make sense. Sean was walking home, she didn't live that far away. As Steve points out, that was the next puzzle they had to try and solve. From the route that Sean was taking, she was clearly walking home, she doesn't live very far from here. So the notion of her getting into a vehicle is of itself significant. Why was she getting into a vehicle? Was it a friend that was picking her up to take her somewhere else? Uh, somebody she'd met and uh, they'd had a brief conversation and decided to um, go on to another location together? Or was it the scene of an abduction? Was it somebody taking her against her will? You couldn't see. There was nothing from that footage that would tell you that. But of course, I've got to find that vehicle, try and do what I can to identify it and do it as quickly as possible. There's no time to waste in a missing person case like Sean's. Police operate with a sense of urgency. Time is of the essence. So at this point, this was on the Monday when I was viewing this footage, she'd been missing since 3am on Saturday morning. And of course, if she was injured, bound, gagged or held hostage somewhere, every moment that passes could be detrimental to her welfare. Now, it could have been an innocent explanation. It could have been a friend that she'd recognised who had said, oh, I'll give you a lift to a, another location, I'll have a drink at another place. But my hypothesis was that she'd got into that car and whoever had taken her had done it for criminal purposes. Though it was obvious from the CCTV that Sean had been taken away in a car, the registration plate wasn't visible because of the blinding headlights. Police desperately needed another break if they were to identify the vehicle. It wasn't long before they got it. Rob Murphy, a reporter from ITV, was also covering the story. They found some more CCTV and this is utterly crucial to the whole case. It's a, some footage taken from the back of a shop, shown all the way through the shop and through the window frame you can see a car pass and on the side of the car on the door frame is a, a yellow square and what could this be could it be a, a taxi number could it be an advertisement of some type a taxi made sense sean was walking home just before 3 a.m a taxi pulls up it's less than a kilometer to walk but it's cold and it's late I sent officers to do door-to-door -door further down the road to see whether there was any sightings, any other CCTV footage. And of course, we also pieced it together with any CCTV footage up here. We found a 
side profile view of, of that car moving away from this location in the bank window just a few meters up from us. And that uh, showed a, an estate vehicle and a slight reflection on the side panels, which I thought could have been a taxi decal. And that gave us a line of inquiry to look at all the taxi drivers in Sunderland. As well as looking at taxi drivers, the police asked for expert help to identify the car that looked like a taxi in the grainy CCTV footage. Well, this was, uh, it came in on the Monday and it was significant. Um, and we, we got that material off to a company called TFL, who are experts in identifying specific makes and models of vehicles to give me a, a tighter cohort of what that vehicle could be that Sean had got into. Now that, that went away overnight and it came back very early on the, uh, during the morning of uh, the Tuesday. So that was important. Overnight, TFL gave me some explicit detail about the car, which was that it was a Toyota Avensis, uh, I think 2007 registration date, and they, they could be quite confident about that. And that, of course, gave me another parameter which I could narrow down using the police national computer to give me a cohort of vehicles operating in the Swindon area that um, would give me a potential suspect cohort that I could concentrate on to try to find out who was operating in that area. Simultaneously, of course, working on the hypothesis that it was a taxi, we went to every taxi company that were running Toyota Aventis Estates to try to identify who was active in the area at that given time. With the type of vehicle identified, the police could narrow down their hunt for the driver. At the same time, teams were searching the forest in the area where Sean's phone had pinged. Steve hoped the tech experts could help him narrow down the location. On the Tuesday morning, FTS, who were doing the that's forensic telephony services, were doing some on-the-ground readings with handheld meters, trying to narrow the parameters down for me as to where this phone ping was most likely to be centered and therefore where Sean O'Callaghan was most likely to be. And they could cut out 90% of the circumference of the search radius, the search parameters, giving me just a vector to work in. And of course, that is a massive improvement because we can then do more systemic line searches to try to find Sean if she's disabled in, a, in the undergrowth somewhere. In addition to what the technology told him, there also had to be a logic to narrowing down the area. Steve looked for places closer to Swindon. He imagined if Sean had accepted a ride from a taxi, it wouldn't take her long to realise the driver wasn't taking her home. Taking the telephony reads from uh, FTS and the hypothesis that Chan had been abducted for the purposes of committing a sexual offence against her, I um, sensed that she was most likely to be in the closer proximity to Swindon because of the difficulty of keeping a victim under control whilst travelling between two places if you're driving. And from that information, my hypothesis was that the most likely location was a local beauty spot called Barbary Castle, just on the environs, the outer outskirts of Swindon, remote rural location, and it consistent with the reads regarding the telephony that uh, we knew from her last signal read. 
So we put a search team in there, a full search team with, uh, with dogs and line searches, and indeed got the helicopter involved as well to try to rapidly cover what is a, a very large area of an Iron Age fort on a wide area. So we instigated that immediately. Despite all this, by Tuesday morning, the search team hadn't found anything. And the hunt for the Toyota Avensis was proving more difficult than it first seemed. It turned out the Toyota Avensis was a popular car in Swindon, and narrowing down the search would take time. Like any endeavour in life, sometimes an investigation just needs a bit of luck. And Steve's team was about to catch an incredible stroke of it. So the key breakthrough, I mean, those techniques would have given me a cohort, a suspect cohort that I'd work through and narrow down. And of course, all that takes time. Quicker we can get on to a nominal person of interest who has been responsible for picking Sean up at that point, the closer we can get to finding out what happened to Sean. But the breakthrough came from Sergeant Marcus Beresford-Smith, who was bright enough to when examining the CCTV footage from the high street, noticed just the corner of a police vehicle. And it occurred to him that maybe that police vehicle was carrying AMPR kit, automatic number plate recognition kit. So he checked all the fleet, it's all traffic vehicles fleet, and found footage of the Toyota Avensis estate passing the police vehicle in that high street area. Suddenly, the police had the break they needed. Journalist Steve Brody called it brilliant police work. A police car, completely by luck, was going up and down this street with its camera working. The camera was working. Plus the fact they put that together with the view from the CCTV camera outside the club, which showed a car with its headlights on, but only a little bit of the headlights. That's all they had. They put that together with the number plate recognition facts, which they went through hours of, of tape, and they put them together. Quite extraordinary. Luck, certainly, but very good policing at the same time. And that gave them this green Toyota. It was the car belonging to Swindon taxi driver Christopher Halliwell. And when the name Christopher Halliwell came up, it only took a quick check of the records to discover he had a history with police. Steve Fulcher explains. The owner turned out to be a local cab driver called Christopher Halliwell. He had a criminal record, and that criminal record contained his previous convictions and a number of aliases that he'd used. His last conviction was in 1986 for burglary. But of course, having identified that individual, it gave me a whole range of investigative options to pursue from that point on. By this stage, it was Tuesday afternoon, four days since Sean's disappearance. Within hours, Steve would have a team surveilling Halliwell's every move. What they would see would rapidly deepen their conviction that Halliwell was their man. On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma. He'd turn off his sat-nav, he turned off his phone. 
they had somebody under surveillance. He then used a blue fluid to, to clean the rear of the vehicle out. That was a massive gamble by Steve Forger, a huge gamble. There was nothing else I could do. 